Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 8. We're going to read verses 30 down through verse 38 and take a look at uh, those same verses. Right, before we read the passage and look at it, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you've given us your word in a language that we can understand. Many of us have read this passage and others like it dozens, if not hundreds of times. And so as we come to your word each week, we confess that we have a level of familiarity with it that oftentimes blinds us to being enamored with it and uh, delighting in it. So we ask that you would overcome uh, our own dullness, that you would fill us with your spirit. We would cause us to glory in our Lord Jesus Christ and what you sent him to do for us and that you would also mold and shape our lives that we'd be more like him. So save any in this hearing who don't know you and encourage and edify uh, your people. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. All right, John uh, chapter eight, beginning at verse 30, uh, speaking of Jesus as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved brothers and sisters of hope and everyone listening this morning, as we've noticed throughout the Gospel of John, what took place was a massive transition from uh, people following John the Baptist with huge crowds that were going out to the Jordan to be baptized by him. And there was a transition point where people left John the Baptist and started following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might have uh, seen the high point, which was the feeding of the 5,000 men, or let's say 20,000 people, including women and children, give or take. And after that, we had a crowd that was very much slimmed down based on the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what is interesting is that John tells us that the people who were following him in the crowds were his disciples. And we're told even in John chapter two that there were people who believed in Jesus and yet Jesus didn't commit himself to them. So there's this uh, a bit of a tug of war here. We have disciples who are real and genuine and then we have people who are called by the same name, disciples or students or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're not real, they're fake. They're false. And what we have before us uh, in this passage um, is a portrait of false disciples, but also a portrait of what it looks like to be a true disciple. And John is taking the time to spell this out to us, not in fullness, but he's giving us some uh, easy ways to tell if we're genuine disciples. He used the words true disciples, genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we walk through this, I want us to notice just four things, two about false disciples, and two things about true disciples. Uh, so first, the reality of false disciples, they exist. 
Secondly, the characteristics of false disciples. What do they look like? What are their marks? Uh, third, the mark of true disciples. And then fourth, the freedom of true disciples. So let's begin with the reality of false disciples. Uh, take a look at verse 30, if you would, in your Bible. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Uh, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And then verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So in the same conversation, John's telling us, there were many who believed in him. Jesus said to those who had believed in him, and he keeps talking with them back and forth. And at verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, who is their father? Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. So if you follow this passage from beginning to end, from verse 30 down to verse 44, the people who claim to believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus talks to them back and forth, and as he talks to them, what is brought out is that they didn't actually believe in him. So they're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ externally. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Likely they may have said, yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I'm a believer of God. I think Jesus is the Messiah. He's the prophet, as the crowds before said, after Jesus fed the 5,000, they're ready to enthrone him. Uh, they may say those things, but as Jesus talks to them, he confronts them with a sobering reality that they don't actually believe, that their father isn't the heavenly father, who's his father, but their father is the devil. And so what we're being taught here is that there really is such a thing as false or fake uh, disciples. And we've seen this, as I mentioned, in the Gospel of John before. Remember back in John 2, 23, uh, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then in John 6, that other example that, we just, uh, that I just mentioned as well, tons of people, tons of disciples, and then Jesus brings it down to on the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh, you have to drink my blood, or you have no life in you. And at the end of that chapter, John 6, verse 66, we're told after this, many of his disciples, not distant followers, many of his disciples, outwardly students of Jesus Christ, yet we're following this person, we're following him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The language of finality, they said, that's it. We're done following the Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see teaching regarding uh, false disciples. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's plenty of people who have good theology. Lord, Lord, I think they have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus was saying, the last day I never knew you. You never did the will of my Father. You claimed me in name and word, but your life gave no testimony to being born again. Matthew 13, verse 20 as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, catch this, but endures for a while. Springs up quickly, would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm a follower of his, endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. And there's another kind of seed as well, what was sown among, sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
So some people will say, yeah, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and following him, but it's like a stage in their life. And all of a sudden they're back to, you know what, there's more important things than Jesus. This world, I got to grab all I can. I got to live the best life I can right now. Let's go for it. And so the world chokes out uh, what could have been produced in them. Uh, in 1 John, the Apostle John writes, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen: such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we looked at uh, ordinary Christians, if you want to use that language, who say, I'm a disciple of Christ, but they're false. But there's also teachers, people who are in pulpits, pastors like myself, elders, deacons, people in religious leadership who say, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't continue in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and they're fake. They're false. They don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not saved. And Hebrews 10 verses 38 to 39 says it really clearly regarding uh, the reality of false disciples. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We'll look at the last half, but there are people who shrink back. They have a kind of, they have a false faith. It's not real, it's not genuine. They're never, they're never born again, but they say they believe. Outwardly, they look like they believe. Likely, they even think they believe, many of them. But they don't actually believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They look like, Pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've read that book uh, recently, uh, but Pliable loved when Christian told him about the doctrine of heaven. In fact, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, when uh, Christian and Pliable are talking, Christian tells him a little bit about heaven and Pliable says, what else? What else? What else? Because he just loves it. And here's some of the things, the things that Christian talked about. There is an endless kingdom to be inhabited and everlasting life to be given us that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Now, Sounds really good, right? Of course it does. There are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. Who doesn't want to shine like the sun? There shall be no more crying nor sorrow for he that is owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. There shall be with uh, the owner of that, there shall be with seraphims and cherubims creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. There, Disney has nothing over heaven. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men that by the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas, for they love, uh, they bear... They love the Lord of the place, all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. Pliable says, the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. Glad am I to hear of these things. Come on, let's get going faster. And then they hit the slew of the spawn, the difficult spot. They're stuck in the mud. They're in quicksand, as it were, thick mud up to their necks. Pliable says, Christian, where are we? And Christian says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a clue but I know that I've got to get this burden off my back and I know where glory lies and I don't care what I have to go to get through it. And Pliable says, I'm out. False disciples, beloved. People who say heaven sounds amazing, it doesn't it? I mean, who would read what heaven looks like in Revelation 21 and 22 
and say, I don't want to go there. Everybody who reads it and hears about it would say, this is amazing. And Jesus is offering eternal life over and over and over again to people through him. Heaven sounds amazing. And yet you throw difficulty, you throw tribulation, you throw trouble, you throw persecution, you throw sin, you throw just heartache in there. And a lot of people tap out and they say, I'm done. Following Jesus sounded really good, but if he's Lord of everything, then why all this pain? Why all this difficulty? Why do I have to bear a cross now? Why can I have glory now? And people can't see the end from the beginning because they have no faith. Remember, in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus, in order to see that it actually exists, that there's something on the other side of this world. You have to have faith. You have to be born again to even behold it. If you can't see it, then you're going to stop pursuing it when this life gets really difficult. And even by experience, beloved, churches are composed of real believers who abide in Christ. And churches are also composed of people who outwardly profess Christ, and yet they're not real disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going on here in Pella. It's going on all over the world. And we shouldn't even think that our church is an exception to that. Some people believe in Jesus because of the fellowship and relationships, but all of a sudden inside the church, difficulty and hardship in relationship comes and they say, I'm out. Some people believe in Jesus because they heard he has power to heal, but they flee when they're not miraculously healed. Lord, I've got cancer. Lord, I've got this or that. Lord, I'm in pain. Lord didn't heal it. Lord took a loved one of theirs home early by human standards and they say, I'm out. Some people believe in Jesus because they don't want to go to hell in the next life, but they flee uh, when they discover that you have to bear a cross in this life and you have to undergo pain in this life in putting to death the deeds of the body and following Christ. Some people believe in Jesus because they want an easier life now, but then they flee again when they discover the reality that the Christian life is going to be glorious, future tense. It's going to be amazing. But in the here and now, it's going to be a lot of slogging it out. With joy and peace and genuine comfort, absolutely. Joy in the midst of trouble, but joy in the midst of trouble. And a lot of people don't want that. Some people believe in Jesus until they hear the call to generosity and loving others. And they think, you know what? This world is all I have. I don't want to be generous and serve other people. I'm out. Some people believe in Jesus because they're in a lot of pain and difficulty. But as soon as the pain and difficulty fades away, they're gone. I'm in a crisis. Lord, I need you. Help me. Crisis is resolved a couple years later. They're out. They don't need Jesus anymore. He wasn't a savior for them. He was simply a crutch for them to get through a difficulty in their life. Now, there are some movements that uh, are the fault of the leaders, not the people who are followers. So you think of like a, a Bethel church, just take uh, easy pickings with their uh, Bethel uh, uh, music that they uh, spread out and they use that to draw other people into their false teaching, which says that Jesus is the perfect Christian taught by Bill Johnson and other people and denying the deity of Christ in so many ways, which is just a horrible teaching and horrible for the souls of people. The followers of those, the false disciples who think they're believers, but they're actually not. A lot of that you can argue is the fault of those false teachers but who can blame Jesus? In this episode, he's the teacher. In the episode in John 8, Jesus is the teacher. He's never taught anything imperfectly at all. <laughs> he is the truth. And following Jesus are false disciples. So you can't blame the teaching in this instance. You can't say, well, you mistaught us, Lord. You led us down the wrong path. This is entirely the fault of the people who have heard the Lord Jesus Christ and yet they refuse to believe. Now, what are the characteristics of false disciples? So false disciples really exist. 
But what are the characteristics? There's more than four, but I want us just to look at four in these verses. The first is in verse 33, trusting in associations for salvation. So uh, verse 33, they answered, and we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will never become free? So they are, we are offspring of Abraham. So the fake believers are trusting in their biological connection to Abraham, which was real. In fact, if you go down to verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you were offspring of Abraham. So Jesus isn't denying that. He's not saying, look, you're off base. He's saying, you're absolutely right. You're offspring of Abraham. But being a biological descendant of Abraham doesn't save anybody. It doesn't save anybody. That's Jesus' point. He's going to dive into that point later on in this chapter in uh, uh, quite great detail. But let me update that a little bit here to us because probably none of us here are arguing, hey, I'm safe because I'm a biological child of Abraham. Probably a lot of us don't have a Jewish ancestry. But some of us might have a Christian ancestry or we say, I live in a Christian nation or my parents were believers or I have friends, I'm associated with Jesus because I have friends who are Christians or I know a lot about the Bible. So we think I'm saved by my association in the same way the Jews did. And beloved, being part of a church is an evidence that we're saved, but it's no guarantee that we're saved. Having Christian parents can be the means by which we're saved, but it's no guarantee at all that any of us are saved. If we think, well, I'm saved because I have Christian parents. No, no Christian parent ever saved any of their kids. No church ever saved anybody. Jesus Christ saves, beloved, and faith in him, not faith in Abraham, not faith in our church, not faith in our parents, not faith in our Christian friends, not faith in our Bible knowledge, only faith in Jesus Christ saves. So the first characteristic of false disciples, they trust in associations for salvation. The second characteristic is that they have no knowledge of the enslaving power of their own sin. Verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, John has been pointing out some things which are ironic, or we've been noticing things in John which are uh, really ironic. And here's an irony. On the surface, they're saying we've never been enslaved to anyone or to any man. We've never been enslaved to any person. Now, Jesus is talking to Jews. <laughs> and if you know a little bit of history, you'd see the irony and laugh a little bit about it because they've been enslaved. Their whole history is a, is, a, is a history of slavery. Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt. The Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years until uh, uh, Moses showed up uh, and God took them out through that. The Canaanites and the Philistines were constantly defeating them and bringing them under their reign and making their lives miserable. Babylon owned them. The Chaldeans came and the Assyrians and brought them under their control. And right now, as they were speaking, Rome was their master. They paid taxes to Rome. They were not a free people at all politically, which is how these Jews often thought. We've never been a slave to anyone. You could say, wait a minute, study history. Look at your own uh, setting. But Jesus doesn't correct their misunderstanding, as is so often the case, because he's not talking about political bondage. He clarifies in verse 34 what he's talking about, what kind of slavery Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's the slavery Jesus is talking about. The slavery that you're in is not political. It's not based on someone else. The slavery that you're in is from your own heart and your own life. That's the slavery that you're in. 
Because everyone who commits sin, even one means we're slave to sin. The wages of sin is death. We're stuck. We got to get a savior to get out. But perpetually committing sin is likely the reference that John is mentioning. Everyone who continues to commit sin is a slave to that sin. We can't have good works that outweigh that sin and our good works buy us out of slavery. Uh Uh-uh. We commit sin and we're slaves to that sin. And A.W. Pink put it this way. I thought it was so helpful. I'm just going to read it for you. The condition of the natural man is far, far worse than he imagines and far worse than the average preacher and Sunday school teacher supposes. Man is a fallen creature, totally depraved, with no soundness in him from the sole of his foot even unto the head. He is completely under the dominion of sin, John 8, 34, a bond slave to diverse lusts, Titus 3, 3, so that he cannot cease from sin, 2 Peter 2, 14. Moreover, the natural man is thoroughly under the dominion of it. He is taken captive by the devil at his will, 2 Timothy 2, 26. He walks according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2. He fulfills the lusts of his father, the devil, John 8, 44. He is completely dominated by Satan's power, Colossians 1.13, and from this thraldom, nothing but the truth of God can deliver. Beloved, we live in a world right now, a society, it's probably always thought this, where we think that the worst form of slavery is what took place in the 1800s in America, and before then, and after then even. We think that the worst form of slavery is political slavery. If the other, if whoever we didn't vote for ends up in power, we're now going to be enslaved. And if you ask many of Jesus' so-called followers who their worst slave master was, they would have said something about politics as well. In fact, the disciples said, are you at now, at this time, going to deliver us? All the way before Jesus' ascension, are you now going to deliver us from Rome's oppression? Are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Political, always on their mind, world power. And Jesus is coming to bring a different kingdom. He's going to bring a different kingdom. He's from a different kingdom, and he calls us into a different nation, as it were, a different kingdom. It's tempting for us to be drawn into that same mindset. The worst thing that can happen for us is slavery to someone else's political power. And we've forgotten what, uh, this is a legendary story. Nobody really knows if it's true, but it sure does make a powerful point that the London Times asked a question, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton, with typical pithiness and funniness, responded, dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's it, a two-word response. What's wrong with the world? I am me. And every human being should say that. What's wrong with the world? Also, what's wrong with my world? How am I enslaved? I'm enslaved because of me. I've got my own sins that enslave me and that I've got to deal with. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer, put it this way, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. We've all got a heart problem, beloved, that we need to deal with. Our own sin is what enslaves us. And this is what the false disciples didn't get, and they don't. They don't get, I've got my own problem. My biggest problem isn't somebody else out there. My biggest problem isn't a political problem. What they don't understand is that their biggest problem is their heart problem. I'm a slave to sin. And unless I get out of this bondage, unless I get somebody to come in and break these shackles and do something for me that I can't do, I'm stuck. And I'm just going to be a slave the rest of my life. And I'm going to be enslaved in hell forever. That's why, beloved, when we 
evangelize. We bring people face to face with their own sins and not with the sins of other people, right? When we reach out to people around us, we're not sitting there talking to them, hey, yeah, the world's a mess. Everything's a problem, absolutely, which it is and it always will be, right? Every generation says <laughs> it can't get any worse. <laughs> and, and, and yet it continues to be worse and worse and worse. And things continue to every generation. We think it's the worst, but it's just like past generations. When we talk to people, what are we talking to them about? Not the sins of other people, but their own, our own, God's deliverance of us. And you can be delivered as well. You've got sins you need to deal with. You're a slave to your own passions, your own desires, your own flesh. The only way out of that is if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is the same for us. That's why when we, this, this is just such basic teaching, and this is what false disciples don't understand. They think their problem is everyone else, but Jesus drives it home. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In other words, you're a slave to sin. Your, your problem isn't political, it's personal. The third characteristic of False uh, believers, false disciples, they are slaves, they're not sons. And we're looking at verses 35 to 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now he says this in the context of Abraham. And so you can pull up uh, image-wise what Paul deals with in Galatians and what's dealt with in Genesis. Think about the slave and the free in Abraham's life. What did that look like? Hagar and Sarah. Hagar had Ishmael and Sarah had Isaac. Who was the slave son that was kicked out? Ishmael, right? Who was the son that got to stay inside? Isaac. And he's saying something really powerful to these Jews in front of him, saying this, you're Abraham's children, absolutely, just like Ishmael was, but he got kicked out because he was a slave, not a son. He was a, he was a slave son. He's out. But the son, that son will stay inside the house. That's everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. That's Christ first. He's making a reference to himself, but it's also everybody inside of him. And so he's saying, you guys claim Abraham's heritage. That's great. But unless you become a son rather than a slave, unless you get inside the house, you're going to be treated just like Ishmael. You're out. You're done. You're going to perish under your sins forever. And it's the same truth, beloved, all the way down to this day. Again, uh, no one's saved by association with religious people. No one's saved by associating with the church. No one is saved by associating with Christians. The issue is, are you a slave to sin? Or do you believe in Jesus and he's paid for your sin and you're no longer a slave to it? That's the issue. Because the day will come when the slaves, everyone who's faking it, everyone who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the day will come when they are kicked out of the house. Hard language, difficult concept. They're removed, and it happens either at the end of their life or will happen for sure if Christ comes before they die. And that's it. They're out of the house. So it's a subtle call from Jesus to the Jews in front of him. Get in the house. Be become a son. Believe in me. Trust in me. Don't cling to Abraham. And then the final characteristic of uh, those who are false disciples is verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. We could do a lot with this. I just want to mention just some things. What is characteristic of those who claim to follow Jesus, but they have no relationship with him? One of the characteristics is that they, they either cut and paste the word at their own whims, and according to their own whims and wishes, or they just get rid of it altogether and just talk about a, a love 
I follow Jesus, he loves sinners, that's enough for me. So they cling to maybe a couple verses, but they get rid of all the rest. They don't want to hear that they're sinful. Or if they do hear that they're sinful, they say, yeah, but uh, I don't have to deal with it very much. Jesus is a savior who forgives and that's enough. I can keep on living in sin. They don't want to hear that the practice of homosexuality is a sin. That's a big one today. They don't want to hear that sexual activity outside of marriage, period, is a sin. That's a hot button issue for today as well. They don't want to hear that pride, selfish, stinking self-righteousness needs repentance. They don't want to abide with that sort of word. Jesus' word finds no place in them. They don't want to hear that living a self-centered life is sinful. They don't want to hear that. The word flat out calls it out. Look, you people are clay. God the potter made us. We're just pots. We're called to do what he calls us to do. We're called to believe in Jesus. We're called to die to ourselves. We're called to follow him. We were made for someone else's glory, not our own glory. Love you to take that message to the world and that finds no place in their hearts. The words of Christ, they can't live with it. They don't want to live with it. And maybe this is the biggest one for them. The only way that you will ever attain heaven is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Boy, that ruffles tons of feathers. People can't live with that. And the reason that they can't live with it is because no matter what they say, they're not genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they can't abide by the word, if they can't trust God's word, if they can't follow the word, let it live in their hearts. They're just telling that they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, these Jews actually wanted to kill Jesus. That's another sign which we can look at, another characteristic. We want to get rid of Jesus altogether. Well, let's finish by looking at two things regarding believers. And the first is the mark of genuine believers. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So again, he's distinguishing between false disciples and those who are truly or true, genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the mark is, if you abide in my word, that's the telltale sign. It's not the only sign, obviously, uh, but in this passage, that's the sign that Jesus gives if we abide in his word. The word abide just means continuing, uh, pressing in, abiding. It, it, it can mean uh, uh, sitting down, almost like moving into a residence, abiding. So uh, where we abide or live in the word, we're, we're people of the word. The word is part of our life. It's what we read. It's what governs our lives. It's the final authority for our walk with the Lord. If we abide in the word, we're truly uh, the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this abiding is also talked about, this continuing in it, this persevering in the Christian life is also talked about uh, in a few places I want to mention. The first one I've already mentioned in Hebrews 10.39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures, who abides to the end will be saved. Revelation 2, 10, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And Revelation 3, 8, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus isn't talking about the starting line, abiding in my word. He's talking about the middle race, as it were, and the end line as well. And he's saying, look, if you want to know if you're my disciple, you won't just say you're mine. You won't just turn, have your life turned upside down or turn your life upside down for a little bit. But if I show up five years later, you'll still be following. And if I was to set on my calendar another time and I showed up 10 years later, you're still there. 
Oh, life may be difficult. Oh, life may be going amazing. But the cares of the world and all your success or the trial and the persecution, nothing will tear you away from me and you will just keep walking. And you say, whether my life is going incredible and I've got the deceitfulness of riches to deal with and the deceitfulness of success and fame to deal with, or life is going miserable and I've got the challenge of pain and suffering and how can God be good and all powerful at the same time when this is happening to deal with. Either way, 50 years later, 60 years later, you'll still be right there and you'll still be walking. You'll be abiding in my word, trusting that what I've said is the truth. Even if your feelings or your own thoughts or the world around you contradicts it and says it can't be true, you will continue to abide in my word. Look, some of us have a run uh, that's about as long as the thief on the cross. It's like the three meter dash, right? That's what it is. <laughs> Truly, you'll be with me in paradise today. Wow, that's amazing. Wouldn't that be? <laughs> some people would just love that, right? I get to do whatever I want. I get, to, I get to steal whatever I want. And then I go to heaven and it only costs me about just a few hours on the cross. Well, beloved, for most of us, it's not going to be the case. But for a lot of us are having to abide in the word and stick close to the Lord and live as people of the word, trusting in Christ to be saved, looking to Jesus for righteousness rather than trying to produce our own and becoming really condescending and mean like the Pharisees, uh, believing that what he said is true, following his commands because we love him. He says, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Beloved, for many of us, this is gonna last 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. Some of us have never known a day without the Lord Jesus Christ. We may live till 90. That's a lot of abiding in the word. And Jesus says, if you're truly my disciples, you'll be abiding in it. You'll be sticking in it. So love of the challenge isn't, hey, how incredible was my conversion? The question isn't, how much do I tell people that I believe in Jesus Christ and how great is my outward profession of my show? No, here's the question. Are you abiding in God's word? Is it your life? Do you trust what God has written? Do you read it? When you do read it, do you take it as the gospel truth? Like it is what you need for life? Is it your ultimate authority? And not just today, but it needs to be five years from now and 20 years from now. For every true believer, it will be. And then finally, let's close with the freedom of true believers. Verse 32, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. So as we abide in the word, we will know the truth. And now there could be a couple things that John's referring to. The truth as taught in scripture, all the truths about who God is, uh, uh, who man is, anthropology, who the Holy Spirit is, pneumatology, who Christ is, Christology, uh, how the church is supposed to operate. You could be thinking about doctrinal truth. But John makes it very clear, and Jesus is going to make clear that Jesus himself is the truth. And so that could be the reference here too. But you will know the truth. Either way, they're the same thing. Because the Bible has to do with Jesus Christ. So you'll know the truth as we abide in the word, and that truth will set us free. So knowing the truth is freedom. And uh, John Ruskin, was a, he was a 19th century English writer. He actually had a, a funny little episode from his upbringing. Here it is, where he learned the truth and how that truth set him free. One evening when I was yet in my mother, my nurse's arms, I wanted to touch the tea urn. So the, the, tea, the uh, tea kettle is boiling on the stove. It was an early taste for bronzes, tea kettles are bronze, I suppose, but I was resolute about it. My mother bade me to keep my fingers back, but I insisted on putting them forward. So my nurse would have taken me away from the urn, but my mother said, let him touch it. So I touched it. And that was my first lesson in the meaning of the word liberty. It was the first piece of liberty I ever got. 
and the last which for some time I asked for. In other words, he learned what? He learned true freedom. Now he is free because of what he learned, not to burn himself by touching the tea kettle all the time. But a lot of people think true freedom is being able to do whatever I want. What they don't realize is that what we want by nature is self-destructive. It ruins our relationship with God, ruins our relationship with other people. That's what we want by nature. That's how messed up we are. When Christ says, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. What he's saying is this, when you get to know me, when you trust in me, when you know and abide in my word, and your life is molded and shaped by the Holy Spirit into my image, you will be free in the sense that you'll finally be able to live and have the power coming from me to live as God intended us to live, which is not to touch tea kettles, not to do things that God says no to. Why does he say no to it? Because it's horrible for us, because it'll destroy our relationship with him and destroy our relationship with other people and just hurt other people. God says no to things because he loves us. That's true freedom, is to follow his commands. That's true Christian liberty. Well, what are we free from? I just Some of us will recognize this right away, but we're free from three things I want to notice, then we'll close. We're free from the penalty of sin when we know the truth. We're free from the power of sin. And then finally, we will be free from the presence of sin. So first, when we know the truth, we will be set free from the penalty of sin. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, when we come to know the truth in Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin, which is our condemnation, that's what we deserve, we're free from that. It's gone. Living in true freedom, I will never ever have to deal with God's wrath. I will never be in hell paying for my sins. In fact, I am righteous before God. I will never have to live a day to accumulate good works to get to heaven. All Jesus' righteousness is in my account. My good works are simply evidence. They're simply proof. They're simply love for God as a response to what he's done for me. Beloved, that's tremendous freedom. You know, there are people who wake up every single day, billions of them around the world, and they wake up, and here's the slavery that they live under. I did something horrible to somebody yesterday, I gotta make up for it today. I misspoke to somebody yesterday. Now I have to treat them with ultra kindness today to make up for it, to try and pay for my sin. But it's never enough. Their conscience won't even let them rest with that. And they do this every day. Beloved, billions of people would love to have this freedom. You're not condemned. All of your sins are forgiven. Go own it, repent, but you can't pay for that sin. You can't make up for it, but it's all forgiven in Christ. Another penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. How many people don't wake up every day? We have 70-year-olds today trying to act like and look like they're in their 20s. That's, that's very popular now. Beloved, people are so, they hate death so much, we all, we recoil from death. We hate it. None of us were made to see it. None of us were made to undergo it. It's a reality. Beloved, the wages of sin is death. It's coming no matter what we do. Imagine the freedom of having the one who had power over death being destroyed. And by faith in Jesus Christ, death for us is just taking a dirt nap. That's all it is. Paul says about believers, they just fell asleep. Well, no, they're dead, Paul. No, actually, they're just taking a nap. They just went down for the night. And you'll see when Jesus comes back, 
Don't, the alarm clock will go off and it'll be the greatest orchestra alarm clock ever. They'll wake up and they'll be back here. Death is so much of a small thing now for Christians. It's not an, it's our last enemy. It's a horrible enemy. We're all gonna face it unless Christ comes again. But it's not the last word because when Christ comes, he'll wake us up and we'll receive new bodies. We're delivered also from the power of sin. Romans 6, 14, sin will no longer have dominion over you or sovereignty over you or power over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, believers still sin. We still fail every day in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We do wrong things and we fail to do the things that we're supposed to do. But sin no longer is the dominant force in our life. Now we can repent of sin. We can grow out of sin. God promises when we confess our sins, he'll cleanse us from our sins and also forgive us for them. So the dominant force in our lives now is Christ living in us. The dominant force now in our lives is the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. Beloved, can you imagine how many people, how many billions of people this very day are waking up and here's what they're saying. They're trying to figure out, I've got an eating problem and an exercise deficit and an eating surplus. I need to change my life this way. Beloved, the world is filled with this. People are waking up saying, I need to exercise power over my mouth. I need to change what I'm saying. The world is filled with this. People trying to exercise power over this and control their hearts. People are trying to exercise power over their life habits so they can enjoy life more. And you and I live in this kind of freedom and every Christian does. The freedom that God's working in us and slowly, our flesh, our old man is being strangled to death. Praise God. Something's dying. And something else is being put on and brought to life, our life in Christ. Beloved, that's tremendous power. So that you and I don't have to be slaves to our sin anymore. And then the third aspect of freedom is freedom from the presence of sin. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. If we're genuine believers who evidence that by continuing the word, the truth will bring us into the freedom of no more sin around us or within us. Look, beloved, this is tremendous. What is a refugee crisis? Fleeing from the presence of sin. Now, so often it's, it's exchanging one horrible sin for a lot of lesser sins, right? Because there is no perfect nation to live. Why do people do that? Because we can only stand so much regarding the presence of sin. Sin is destructive. When sin abounds, it makes everybody's life miserable. And people get out. They say, I want to get out. I want to go to a place where there's less sin or no more sin. Beloved, in Christ, God says there will be that time and it's coming. You have that freedom. You have that freedom to know that in Christ, you'll be free from the very presence of sin someday. So beloved, continue in the word. Abide in the word. Live in the word. Let's be people of the word. Let's keep on abiding. Not till tomorrow. Not till next year. This isn't a sprint. We're abiding until God calls us home. So let's have every one of us set in our minds, myself included, that if God gives me 50 more years, then every day I'm going to live for him the best I can. Repenting, trusting forgiveness in Christ, dying to myself. I'm not just going to do this for a month. Like I'm going to have a little... 30 or 40 day time with the Lord and then I'm gonna go do whatever I want after that. No, for the rest of my life, I'm following Jesus and abiding in his word. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then repent and trust in him, abide in him. The Christian life is not a sprint. And just let me mention this. 
You can if you want to. If you're not a Christian, you can live the rest of your life for yourself. And I can guarantee this, you will die miserable. You will never have found true joy. You'll never have found true satisfaction. You'll never have found eternal life. Everybody wants to promise it to you, but it's not here in this world. But if you will follow Christ and you will abide in him, no matter what he calls to walk through, he guarantees that the sufferings of the present age, as the Apostle Paul said, aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. In other words, God will more than make up for any suffering you go through in this life as a Christian. So I urge you to be reconciled to God, to believe in Christ. Let's pray.